Hello, and welcome to Uplift, a podcast about the transformative power of design from architecture and design firm NBBJ. I'm your host, Dr. Hina Santry. Each week, we chat with people from all over the healthcare continuum who have been deeply affected by the built environment. On today's episode, nothing is more unnerving than a cancer diagnosis, something 1.9 million people in the United States will experience this year alone. However, there's good news. The death rate continues to go down, 32% since 1991, due in part to breakthroughs in scientific discoveries. For example, the movement toward co-location of cancer services, in other words, housing all cancer care services under one roof, is increasing, supplemented by a more holistic approach to treatment that involves integration of clinical trials, immunotherapy, and cellular therapy. Today, we'll talk about what these developments mean for the future of cancer treatment and how design interventions can help hospitals provide a robust continuum of care. I'm excited to welcome Mara Bloom, Vice President of the Mass General Cancer Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Mara is currently working on a 450-bed clinical facility called the Mass General Cambridge Street Project, which focuses primarily on cancer and cardiac care, and incorporates many of the new approaches I mentioned earlier. Also with us today is my NBBJ colleague, Sarah Markovitz, who has been working closely with Mara on this project. Let's dive in. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mara. Thank you so much for joining me. Mara, I'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your career as a healthcare leader and your current role at Massachusetts General Hospital. Sure, Hina. Glad to. I oversee clinical operations and research, business development for the Cancer Center and Radiation Oncology. I've been here for almost 14 years, which has been fantastic, and have also had the opportunity to work very closely with Sarah for my entire career here. So Sarah, how about you? Tell us a little bit about what you do at NBBJ. I'm a healthcare design architect, and I lead our healthcare practice here in Boston. I've been at NBBJ for 21 years, and that whole time I've been working with major hospitals and academic medical centers designing the clinical settings, and for many of them really focusing on the cancer care settings. So Mara, before we talk about cancer care today and in the future, I want to step back for just a second and think about how our understanding of cancer has changed over the years. It used to be that radical surgery, high-dose radiation, and toxic chemicals pumped into your veins were sort of the only treatment options, but things have really changed. And so can you tell us a little bit about the changes that you've seen over the course of your career? So I think that the game changer has been the screening guidelines and the diagnostic capabilities that we have. So the fact that we have mammograms and colonoscopy and PSAs and all of these tests and that primary care physicians are able to prescribe these and we all get reminders <laughs> about these tests, it is really become part of what you do. You go for your mammogram every other year or every year, depending on your risk factors. You get a colonoscopy at age 50 and then again at age 60. So because this has been commonplace in the U.S. and there is access to imaging centers and other hospital-based resources, what we see is that people are getting diagnosed earlier and they aren't being diagnosed with the 
end-stage cancers or stage four cancers that we could catch these cancers sooner, earlier in the disease progression, and then be able to treat patients with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, and many other treatments. And I think over the last 20 years, multidisciplinary care and just having access to diagnostics has been the real big game changer. I would say over the last five to 10 years, what we've seen is that cancer is becoming more of a chronic disease because we have access to so many different treatments. And we have precision medicine. For the last 10 years, we've had molecular testing, which enables us to understand a patient's tumor mutation. And we're able to target that either with standard of care drugs or with experimental drugs and clinical research, which has been really amazing. So many of our cancer patients, they never come off therapy. They are living on therapy forever. Whereas there are some cancer patients like breast cancer, if you have an early stage breast cancer, you may have a very circumscribed treatment paradigm. But if you are a metastatic breast cancer patient, you may be on therapies, immunotherapy, and other therapies for your life. Same with myeloma patients and other types of cancer patients. Can you give us a little bit on what the traditional cancer care treatment model looks like? The days of just providing chemo, surgery, and radiation are over. I would say over the last 20 years, hospitals have been working to really co-locate cancer services and to provide one-stop shopping for patients so they can meet with all of the providers, have all of the services co-located. And we have that here at Mass General and also having the integration of clinical trials, which we're very fortunate that we have that in our center. What's really changed over the last, say, five to 10 years is the pace of discovery and new cancer treatments. So when I arrived here, there wasn't even something called the targeted therapy. (laughs) And then targeted therapies took off. And this targeted cancer care that really was able to match up with a patient's genetic or genomic signature became all the rage. And then about Five, six years ago, immunotherapy became all the rage where we were really using patients' immune systems, giving them treatments that use their immune system to really fight the cancer. And that was a completely different set of treatments, side effects, symptoms, symptom management, and the way we use our spaces and integrate our operations. Definitely much more need for urgent care and team-based care. And then over the last few years, I'd say the last three years, we've leapt into what's called cellular therapy and tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and all sorts of novel treatments where there are products manufactured off-site with industry partners. Some of them we are creating on-site through our own laboratories. And what's exciting is that those treatments really provide cures, not just life extension for a period of time, but really are allowing patients to be cured from their cancers. And probably moving into the future, we're going to be moving into more home-based care, home infusion, remote monitoring, 
and different ways of working across the care continuum. What makes you most hopeful about the future of cancer care? There is so much to be hopeful about. Number one, it's the patients. The resiliency of our patients, their willingness to trust us with their care, they inspire me every day. And they're the reason that we can innovate these new treatments. They trust us. And I am really excited about the new therapies and treatments coming down the pipeline, whether that's cellular therapy, perhaps cancer vaccines, early detection, targeted therapies, oral chemotherapy, and then innovation in the way we deliver care, whether it's hospital at home or using technology to manage the care continuum. That is really exciting. What we want to do is give people back their lives, give them time to enjoy with their families, to give them great quality of life as they live with cancer. Sarah, what excites you or makes you most hopeful about the future of cancer care? Well, I can't speak to the clinical side, except for what I learn constantly from Mara every time I have a conversation with her. But I am really excited about this idea of more care at home or the appropriate place for the appropriate care, that we can go to environments that are less scary and more appropriate and comforting to the patient. Sarah, earlier we uh, talked about the Cambridge Street project that you and Mara have been working on. There are pictures and more information on the project on our website. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the whole health concept was built into the design of this project. We interviewed leaders at a lot of the major academic medical centers as part of our research before we started the Cambridge Street project. So we asked questions about what was leading edge, what they had done recently. And we really incorporated a lot of the ideas that we gathered from other folks into what we're doing here at Cambridge Street. But I think what is cool about the integrated part, not only do we have the full kind of realm of patient care where the clinicians know them and know how to care for them if they need some really urgent care, but we also have all the supportive services in the building too, the the pharmacy and the lab and imaging. So anything else that goes around that care, so um, patients really don't have to go distant or this, that support is there. And then we also have the fuller range of integrative therapies for patients here too, so that we've got those kind of therapies that help patients to actually be able to endure the treatments that they're getting and to be able to, you know, kind of come through that feeling better throughout the process. So it's, it's really cool that all of that is in one space. And so to dive a little bit deeper into the design aspects, I want to pivot to Tamara, right? So one of the innovative aspects of the Cambridge Street location is that various disciplines will be brought together, right? So it won't just be physicians from the various medical specialties, but you'll be incorporating the work of holistic practitioners, as you've described. And then, of course, there are therapists, social workers, counselors, financial counselors, you know, people have various emotional, spiritual rehabilitation and economic needs that are occur during their cancer treatment, and you're uniting all of these resources. But as you thought about this blank slate to move all of these resources together, from your perspective, what were you thinking about in terms of being able to enhance teamwork in this new location across all of these disciplines? 
So one thing that's really cool is having the in to outpatient, which we've discussed. So the building is two towers. One tower will be predominantly heart center and cardiac, uh, cardiovascular services. And then one tower will have predominantly cancer services. But then there's a platform, an ambulatory platform that goes across both buildings that will be all cancer. So we are basically doubling the footprint of one of our floor plates. So our entire infusion center will be on one floor plate, which is really exciting because we'll be able to create different areas within that floor plate for our clinical research and phase one for our standard chemotherapy and infusions, and then also for our urgent care. So that's really exciting to have that all on one unit and the nurses can cross cover. They can actually learn about phase one and cross cover in urgent care. It really makes for a really unified and seamless workforce when you have everybody co-located on one floor. And today our infusion is across several different units and it's less efficient. And I think that it will just create a wonderful esprit de corps for the team as well as for the patients. Then for our practice, we're creating a new patient access center where all of our multidisciplinary care visits for new patients will all be housed in this wonderful center where we will embrace our new patients with a warm hug and they will have larger rooms with consultation areas. That is where our whole scheduling team will be and the new patient will be really embraced as opposed to the new patients just visits occurring in an exam room where everybody crowds in. This will be a totally different experience and the fact that we will have all of these rooms in one zone will actually create more efficiencies for us. So that is a big sea change and it will just create that wonderful experience. So, you know, when you have this idea that you want to put this like bigger space that, yeah. you know, is more than the typical exam room as a medical planner, like, what are you thinking? I think there were a couple of things we were trying to work out. One was like just a better flow for these patients because you, we learned from talking to the patients through, through the patient and family focus groups and advisory groups that just about the terror that these patients are facing when they come for the first time. So trying to get them out of the stream of the normal, the patients that are returning all the time and to be able to have this kind of handheld experience to go someplace different, understood that they were bringing more family members. So almost like when we kicked off the project, we did mock-ups, really simple mock-ups with simple cardboard just to size out what this larger room would be to allow for a certain number of family members and a certain number of clinician and team members to make sure that that was a comfortable amount of space and when we planned around it. And then we also planned from the patient experience side by kind of the stream and the experience that they would have and the quiet and calmness. And then also from the provider side so that right near where these exam rooms are, there's also large conference rooms for that whole multidisciplinary team to prepare for meeting with these patients. So it's got the right amount of 
audiovisual and technology stuff to be able to allow the medical oncologist, the surgeon, the pharmacist, the lab folks, the imaging folks, all to be in the same room together to come up with a care plan. And what's so wonderful about the mass journal experience for a patient is you come in in terror and you feel a lot better if you go out with a plan, a care plan, and that's what's going on in this multi-D clinic. So we want to support it both from the clinician side and staff side and also from the patient side. So you you mentioned before this idea of, you know, you want to keep patients out of the ED and there's all these risks associated with the immunosuppression of being on various cancer treatments and all of the infectious disease that might be lingering in the emergency department. So there's this urgent care that you've referred to in the new project. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about this concept of the urgent care and what its goals are? The goal is that a patient who's not feeling well and is at home, has a place to go and get immediate care that might not require an inpatient stay, but might require several hours and maybe even an overnight stay. It's with people that these patients have been used to seeing. With the, the folks know exactly what kind of treatment these people have. And the urgent care center is specifically there set up to deal exactly with the cancer patients and their needs. And then the goal there at the urgent care center is to get the patient to a point of feeling well, really focusing on getting them going home if possible. But if they need then to proceed on up to the inpatient floor, they're just an elevator away and they just go straight up into the tower to the the appropriate care spot for them. It's really patient-centered and it's staff-centered. What happens today is I have an immunotherapy and then I may get a little rash And we tell you, if you get a little rash, you get a cough, you get a headache, those things actually seem like things we may get at any point, but come back, call your doctor, because it may be a side effect related to your immunotherapy and not related to just having some primary care condition. So those patients, what happens to them? They come back and they clog up the clinic. Some of them need to be admitted. Some of them go to the infusion center. Some of them are seen by a nurse practitioner or a physician. So it's really creating a focus factory where we can support these patients, as Sarah really described, and ensure that they get the care that they need and the level of care that they need efficiently. As Mara alluded to, in a number of areas, clinical care, research, discovery. You don't always have to physically see a patient to provide them good care, right? So tell me a little bit about how that designed and modified as you think about increased demand for telemedicine and other sort of kinds of remote monitoring options. Yeah, it's not just from telemedicine, although I'll adjust that too, Hina, but there, I mean, it would kind of impacted everywhere through the building. So we had already been planning on designing the inpatient room so they could be modified from being for just a general med surge patient to an ICU patient. But with the surge needs, we slightly tweaked the rooms. The rooms have a great deal of flexibility. And outside every patient room, every clinic room, every infusion bay, we have built-in PPE cabinets because we're just expecting that that is our future. You know, it's just better infection control and that we're, we're looking forward to being able to do better in terms of infection prevention in the hospital. And then in terms of the telehealth, we're looking at both on the inpatient side and the outpatient side. So the inpatient rooms are gonna all have smart TVs which not only allow you to have entertainment and be also be able to 
order services from the hospital and have interpretive services, but also allow physicians to bring up information from medical records to share with the patient in the room. But they'll also now have this kind of telehealth presence, either bringing in consulting clinicians who can't be there with the rounding team, be able to be there virtually, or be able to bring in family members who can't be there when there's a consult with the clinical team. They'll be able to be there with the patient room. So that's really great for expanding the communication within the inpatient. And then every outpatient room, every ambulatory care room is likewise equipped now with a screen to allow for these either including consults from a distance or including family members from a distance. And then on top of that, we're expecting that for the clinical team to be most efficient, going to be running between patients to patient in the clinic, but they're also, when they've got a couple of minutes of downtime, they can now have a patient remote patient consult. So the team workrooms are set up so that the clinical staff can use their time best so that they can have these virtual visits in between their in-person visits. I think one of the other changes that we saw is that virtual care is here to stay. So what we've had to look at is in the CSP building, what type of telephone rooms do we have where people can have a private discussion or what types of soundproofing can we have if we have cubicles because everybody's on Zoom or some type of platform. So I think that those are some of the challenges. And we really haven't built out in CSP a command center for digital health, but I could imagine by the time this building goes live, there will be much more remote monitoring of patient wearables and apps, and that requires a different type of workforce. I think that's really just really exciting on the horizon. And the fact that you've built in flexibility into your space means that you could, you know, either find room for it there at some point, or as you said, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the main campus. You know, the other thing that comes to mind listening to this sort of the pivot from COVID, the lessons learned, the changes that are here to stay, really, to me, harkens back to the word that you said, Mara, that really resonates with me, the democratization. You know, as you mentioned, research is a very important part of continuing to provide these cutting edge therapies for generations to come. And it used to be able to get this kind of experimental treatments, you would have to come in and do all this cumbersome paperwork. And some people live 45, 50, minutes without traffic from Boston. And so can you tell us a little bit about how sort of the conduct of clinical trials is changing from like the way it used to be? So there's one thing I'd like to thank COVID for, which is (laughs) helping us to really be able to be more creative around how we do research. During the COVID period, we moved to remote consenting. We were able to allow our patients to get certain aspects of the clinical research, like to get their labs checked in other locations in our network, not just at the mothership. So I think our organization, along with many others, we really want to democratize clinical research. We want to distribute it. We have had clinical research in some of our network sites, in our Danvers site, our Waltham and Newton Wellesley sites for years, but it's extremely expensive and it's a lot of effort. So the more we could use technology, we could partner with sponsors, we can develop systems of care where we really are leveraging a network and we're leveraging technology and we do what's right 
for the patient, right? So Mm -hmm. being able to have telemedicine visits as part of the monitoring or maybe even home monitoring or the use of apps or wearables as opposed to having a nurse or a clinical research coordinator have to collect all of the data. This is the future. And we're really excited about this. Sarah already alluded to a little bit about the impact of listening to to patients and their sense of fear when they're in a typical clinic setting, waiting room, and then these, you know, doors leading into this sort of like unknown space of clinic. She mentioned that, and and it sounds like that came from sort of conversations with uh, patient stakeholders. I know that this project, getting to various design iterations, involved talking with both patient and caregivers, as well as through care team members. How do you two work together to identify the people that you will be speaking to, both on the patient and family side, as well as on the team member side? So we start big with big groups. We try to include the supportive services that are going to be in there. So we try to have the pharmacist in the room and then everybody down to environment, you know, environmental services who are going to make sure that the space stays beautiful the way we designed it, make sure they keep it clean from the start and has a perspective on, you know, infection control and we include the infection preventionist. So when we start our initial workshops and we try to take people through kind of in interactive design work sessions where people can inform us by whatever means possible, whatever way is easiest for them to express a need. And Mara, these are very busy people. They have patient panels, they have surgeries to do, they have labs to check, they're doing follow-up phone calls. So how do you identify people and how do you create time for them to really engage in the process? And then after that, tell me a little bit more about the the patient and family advisory councils and, and how people become active in those. I will tell you, everybody wants to be at this table. So people make time to be at the table because you really get one bite at the apple when you're designing a new building. And it's really, it's a huge privilege to be in a new building and to have this opportunity for our patients and our staff to be part of this. So it's really exciting. And I would say I do not have to twist too many arms to get people to come to meetings. I think sometimes our challenge is that the the teams are so large and everybody wants to be included that sometimes we have to whittle down to a core team to really make decisions. And if we have pressure points, we just have open and honest communication. There's really no problem too big or too small that we can't solve. So on the patient side, that is always a little trickier. We have patient and family advisory councils, and what we do is a mix. So we had Sarah and her team members come to our standing monthly patient advisory council early on to get input around the patient journey. And it was the patients who told MBBJ that In their waiting room, one of the things that bothers them is the wall between one side of the clinic and the waiting room that they fear what goes on behind the wall. It's scary. So really architecturally and also operationally, how do we bring down the fear quotient? So we've talked about 
really having more navigation as opposed to big monolithic desks where there's a desk and then there's a door leading you to that scary hallway where you're going to sit in an exam room. We're working with light and natural colors and ways to really break up the wall so there isn't a feeling that it's care providers versus patients. I think that that was such an aha to all of us. I wanted to ask you, Sarah, as far as you heard so many things over those many months of contact with various stakeholders. What are a couple of other sort of takeaways that you had that you learned from the stakeholder engagement that made you think about changing design? So there are some things. I mean, when we talk about a patient's journey, we started to ask the patients, from the time at home when you prepare to come in, what do you do before you come in? You know, all the way through every step of driving, parking, registering all the way through until you left and got home again. And one patient told us that before they come in for particular treatments, they get their papers in order. And that was so sobering to our team. You know, it just really made our team very aware of where people's heads are when they're coming. And it really makes you think about every step along the way and how we can make that a more warm and comforting and caring experience all along the way. And then somebody else told us that they think of their visits with a certain amount of rituals, you know, that when they come in, they go and get their coffee or they stop to look at certain pieces of art because there is some wonderful art collection in the hospital. And if things go well, they stop at the chapel um, on their way out. And so we start thinking about the journey too, about those various kinds of amenities and places and so that people can create a ritual that seems to help people in their visits. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Uplift. Special thanks to our guest today, Mara Bloom. For more information about this project, visit our website at nbbj.com. If you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. We'll see you on the next episode.